Radio Krikon. Hello and welcome to episode 18 of Get Your Creek On, a podcast about Jonathan Creek. I hope this finds you well. I have to admit, I personally am not in a particularly good place at the moment, by which I mean the United Kingdom. Terrible government, increasing bills, crap weather. Although, specifically, I am in Scotland, so, uh, well, no, terrible government, increasing bills and particularly crap weather. Thanks for joining me today as we reach the second Christmas special, Satan's Chimney. A famous actress and a world-class escapologist die in separate but similarly inexplicable circumstances. Is there anyone out there who can figure it all out? Well, yeah, obviously, Jonathan Creek, you know, uh, the main character in the show that this podcast's all about. This is a one-off episode in between Series 3 and 4 of the TV show, and it marks the start of Series 4 of the podcast. Hopefully that isn't too confusing. When we get into Series 4 of the TV show in the next episode of the pod, there will be an exciting new feature starting. There's a fair amount of potential for it to be complete rubbish, but I'm going to give it a go anyway, so listen out for that. Satan's Chimney aired on Boxing Day 2001. Australian dude, let's get this moving. Episode Synopsis Doomdorf in Scotland, 1557. Two boys in a tree spit and throw stuff at a passing carriage transporting a woman, a bishop and various other people towards a castle. Upon arriving, the woman is led down a spiral staircase, then a ladder, into a spherical chamber, where she's tied down and locked inside, much to her wailing umbrage and the bishop's protestations. After a time, the doors opened back up, and we see that the woman's body has disappeared, supposedly having somehow been taken by the chimney in the roof. Satan's chimney. We move to a modern-day film set where an actress begins a scene of post-coital dialogue, and it's revealed that her male co-star isn't actually present. She's struggling to focus and the director, Herman, calls a break. He apologises to the star actress, Vivian, and goes to see the brash, hypochondriac American male lead, who's holed up in his trailer with a throat problem. We then see him providing his lines via a screen from the trailer. This is Bronson Peterson. At Jonathan's windmill, he opens a letter from Maddie, whom it turns out is on a book tour in the deep south of the United States. He makes a call to a woman called Carla Borrego, the manager of escapologist Alan Kalanak, and argues with her about appearance fees and rehearsal time. She essentially brushes him off and calls him a prop boy, She's been talking while in a fancy department store, and upon leaving has a bust-up with a rude guy who doesn't hold the door for her. Nevertheless, the pair of them almost immediately end up in bed. Back on the film set, the American actor Peterson argues with his co-star Vivian about health and hygiene. Carla watches a news report about the production, which mentions that Vivian was previously married to Alan Kalanak, and it's mentioned also that he is currently offering $1 million to anyone who can design a device or scenario that he, the modern-day Houdini, cannot escape from. On the film set, Herman has a heart-to-heart with Vivian, telling her that she seems haunted and sad. He suggests that she take a break after filming at his Highland Pile, 
the godforsaken Doomdorf Castle. At rehearsals for his show, Carla arrives to recce Adam Clouse's theatre, and Jonathan annoys her immediately by making personal suggestions about her sex life and suggesting that her lover doesn't actually exist. On the film set, Vivian heads to her dressing room to get ready for a catch-up dinner with her ex-husband Alan. She's horrified to find that someone has ripped up all her clothes and also stuck a dummy head of hers to the wall with a knife. She makes a phone call and we hear her telling the unidentified person on the other end that what they wanted between the two of them wasn't possible, and then she listens as they respond with something evidently very upsetting. Jonathan and Adam head to meet the mysterious Kenny Starkus, a supposed creative genius who it turns out has been living not in Norway, as Adam thought, but in a doorway. He's lost his job and marriage in pursuit of magic success, but for some reason Adam still ends up giving him a job as an associate creative consultant. Alan Kalanak then arrives to rehearse and amazes the crew with his performance. On the film set, a scene involving the locked door to Vivian's character's office being broken into with an axe. However, when the door is opened, the entire cast and crew are horrified to find that Vivian has actually been shot and is dying. She manages to weakly point towards the window and then breathes her last. The cast tell a detective how absolutely no one could have got in or out of the room through either the door or window, and that the whole thing just seems completely unsolvable. At the theatre, Kalanak has a quiet word with Jonathan about a potential career opportunity, and mentions having heard all about his mystery-solving skills. He then receives the terrible news via phone that Vivian has died. He mentions having seen her the other night and that there was a frailty about her, suggesting that she potentially knew she was going to die. He mentions to a disgruntled Carla that Jonathan might be able to help. She goes over to the windmill, gives him all the details about the seemingly impossible crime, which he's already fully up to speed with, and he gets thinking about it all. He notices that Vivian's career has involved solid work for decade upon decade apart from two blank years in the early 70s. Carla takes Jonathan to the film set where the production is trying to soldier on, and they look the murder room over. The also attending Detective Bulstrode believes that it was suicide despite that too being totally infeasible. Carla steals a nurse outfit from the costume department and barges into Bronson's trailer, pretending to have an appointment to smother him in medicinal cream. She steals a letter that he was reading, which states that death awaits him at Doomdorf Castle. She also gets some sly photographs of him rubbing cream into his balls. Jonathan chats with Jodie, a young female actor on the set, and Tom, the actor who broke the door down with his axe. He then tells Carla and Alan that he thinks Vivian wasn't pointing outside the window when she was shot, but at someone in its reflection. All of the actors head to Scotland for Vivian's funeral in the moors at Doomdorf, and for some reason, Carla and Jonathan tag along too. Bronson's annoyed that Carla's there given she pretended to be a nurse, and is about to demand that she leaves before she blackmails him with the naked photos. Everyone's staying in Doomdorf Castle that night. Herman tells them all about the Satan's Chimney dungeon, into which Protestants were imprisoned and sent to hell. Round the solemn dinner table, he has Alan read out an ancient parchment written by a bishop. They all head down to see the chamber, and after Bronson leaves following a rat climbing up his trouser leg, 
it's pointed out that this would make an ideal location for Alan's $1 million escapology challenge. Alan's up for it and is chained to the ground much as the Protestant lady was. Several minutes later, everyone heads back down and Alan has disappeared. As they return to the surface, Jonathan receives a call from Alan saying that he's onto something and not to let on to anyone else. In the middle of the night, unable to sleep, Jonathan looks out of the window and happens to see Alan driving out of the castle courtyard in his car. In the morning, he searches the courtyard and can't find the opening of the chimney from downstairs. Inside, Jodie shows Jonathan and Carla Vivian's laptop, which she took in an attempt to find out more information. There's a password protected diary on there. Jonathan works out the password quite easily. Natch. Jonathan and Carla go for a walk down by the river and unfortunately end up finding Alan's body. Back at the house, Jonathan studies the words on the parchment Alan read the night before. He has Carla preoccupy Jodie by allowing herself to be molested while he logs into Vivian's diary. Once everyone's finished, he reveals that he knows who killed Vivian, and that it was all engineered by Alan Kalanak, who had latterly become something of a right-wing pro-life nutter, and find out that she terminated their baby back when they were married. The police agree that Alan did this, somehow, and then killed himself. Jonathan goes to Herman's studio in the bowels of the castle to say goodbye, noting all the editing equipment he has down there. He realises that when he saw Kalanak leaving the castle, he was actually in the passenger seat of his American car rather than the driver's seat, and this helps everything fall into place. When Alan read the parchment, Herman recorded it on a secreted microphone, and then cut and pasted the words needed into editing software to create what was ultimately a fake phone call to Jonathan. Alan actually did not leave the chamber alive. Carla and Jonathan check out the chamber again. She almost dies by going down into it to retrieve her ankle bracelet despite Jonathan expressly telling her not to. He's gone back upstairs to close the drawbridge, which is part of a mechanism that lowers a fake ceiling to crush anyone present in the chamber. She's dragged to safety at the last possible second by Bronson, who has been spying on the pair of them. It turns out the whole thing with Alan's death was a group effort, a bit like Murder on the Orient Express, with Herman, Jodie and Bronson all in on it, plus a midget called Raymond, whom I haven't bothered mentioning until this point. They lured Alan down to the chamber and locked him in with Bronson and Raymond having already gone back upstairs to operate the counterweighted system and to carry out the fake phone call between Alan and Jonathan. Kalanak's corpse was then driven out to the countryside in the middle of the night and dumped to make it look like suicide. Bronson had been left sickened by the whole thing and had almost given everything away with the note saying death awaits you at Dimdorf, which in fact he wrote for Alan rather than receiving it himself as Carla and Jonathan thought. However, he never got round to passing it to Mr. Kalanak. The motive for Vivian's murder, the abortion, was faked by Herman so that the suspicion would fall onto Alan. A taxi drops Jonathan and Carla off at her flat and when they go in, she finds Kenny waiting for her. He propositions her very unsuccessfully and after he leaves, Jonathan finally works out what actually happened with Vivian. 
He sticks a floppy disk with a copy of her diary into Carla's PC and realises that the blank spaces in the text are actually white font, which he switches to black to reveal crucial hidden details. They then head to a ramshackle caravan which turns out to have a shrine to Vivian inside it. It belongs to the weird actor Tom whose axe smashed open the door when she died. It turns out he'd had his mind poisoned by Alan Kalanak and between them they planted a gun device inside the axe and when he smashed it through the door he fired out a bullet which killed her. Oh, and um, by the way Tom was Vivian's secret son, the one she kept secret from Alan which Tom himself only finds out now from Jonathan and it all gets a bit weird for poor Tom because he was actually desperately in love with Vivian, his mum. Tom rather dramatically tries to strangle Jonathan, but Carla manages to persuade him to stop doing it by telling him that nobody will look after Jonathan's dog if he dies. This somehow does the trick. We finish at the theatre, where Adam is auditioning female contortionists. Carla storms in and demands to know why Jonathan hasn't been in contact with her, even though the whole caravan debacle only happened last night and it's only midday now. They agree to go out that night, and a new partnership is born. Episode Analysis Satan's Chimney is the longest Jonathan Creek episode to date, running in at a full two hours, which is just as well because there was quite a lot of detail to cram into the main story, with two separate but linked deaths and quite a bit of background to bring to light the introduction, of course, of Carla Borrego. It ultimately felt a bit like watching a film rather than a TV show. I did really enjoy the introduction of Kenny Starkus to the series, although he doesn't appear all that more often. And there really were some quite enjoyable comic moments that nicely offset the darker main storyline. His living in a doorway rather than Norway, emerging from the trunk in Jonathan's windmill, and his incompetent suggestions for Adam's show were all a lot of fun. The deluded attempt at seducing Carla was great too, and whilst Bill Bailey perhaps isn't the most conventionally handsome man in the world, even I, a staunch heterosexual, was somewhat taken when he released his fine mane near the end and shook it all loose. Carla's introduction was also a lot of fun and the sheer disdain with which she treated Jonathan at the outset certainly doesn't mark her out as being a particularly nice person, but the caustic remarks were very very funny. By the end she'd not only merely warmed to him but was eager to go out with him which was certainly quite the turnaround. She had some of the best lines in the episode, I thought, including recommending Jonathan and Adam kept their mouths shut whilst in the unfortunate 69 pose at the theatre and telling Jonathan that she can see how he might have the knack for making women disappear. It would be quite exhausting to try and go through all the connections linking the various characters and the reasons behind the two murders taking place, but long story short, Alan Kalanak was angry at Vivian for having an abortion, so poisoned the mind of her secret son Tom to kill her, and then Hector arranged for Alan's death as revenge for doing it, how Hector would have persuaded Jodie and Bronson to take part, I'm not exactly sure. Perhaps he promised them great career opportunities in return. Now, the axe gun through the splinter door idea was in some ways clever and ingenious, but when you really think about it, how realistic is it to fire that shot accurately? 
Not very, I would wager. Alan's death in the dungeon was, I suppose, slightly more realistic given that the elaborate setup was already in place, but surely when the police found his body in the river they realised he'd been crushed rather than drowned as they suspected. Carla only realising Alan was there when she stepped on him was a bit silly as well. Both her and Jonathan would surely have seen the corpse beforehand. Hector in particular had quite a few hammy lines across the episode, such as the ones around Alan Kalanak going to hell, and that persuading a man to kill his own mother is the worst possible crime someone can commit, but let's not let that kind of thing spoil the episode for us. There's my analysis of the episode, totally comprehensive and well thought out as normal, and now it's time for… The Celebration of Location Information Station The big country house at which Vivian Brodie dies during the shooting of her movie is Gaddiston Place near Hemel Hempstead. Built in 1768, it's a grade two listed Palladian house said to have one of the finest views in all of Hertfordshire and, somewhat extraneously, is nowadays the headquarters of a software development firm called Zara Limited. Other productions that have been filmed there include The Legend of Tarzan, Little Britain, an episode of Chucklevision, and a 1944 film called Fanny by Gaslight. <clears throat> Some of the Doomdorf Castle scenes, including the banquet hall and the courtyard, were shot at Raby Castle in Northumberland. It houses a large collection of notable artworks by artists I've never heard of, and it's open to the public in the summertime. And finally, the very scenic outdoor scenes on the way to Doomdorf Castle, where Vivian Brodie's coffin is carried through the landscape and Carla blackmails Bronson were shot near Bridge of Orkey on the shores of Loch Tulla. Roundabout there is apparently great for bird watching with ospreys and white-tailed eagles known to be nesting, so why not go and visit, even though it's statistically certain that you live many hours drive away. Creek Connections At 1 hour 39 minutes and 13 seconds, we see that Carla's bookshelves contain at least one copy of the magazine Gardener's World. Gardener's World is a BBC TV show about gardening, funnily enough, and its main presenter at the time of recording is Monty Dawn. Monty Dawn was born in the German city of Iserlohn, home to the Iserlohn Roosters ice hockey team who play their home matches at the Eissporthaller Eiserlohn Arena, which has a capacity of 4,999. 4,999 is also the MasterCard chargeback reason code for point of interaction errors, which indicate an improperly authorised transaction that the cardholder doesn't believe they should be responsible for paying. Chargeback, translated into Italian, is Storno de Adabito, and from the letters within this you can form the word deodorants, also known as antiperspirants, the modern formulation of which was patented in 1941 by inventor Jules Montaigne. He died on August the 20th, 1962, which happens to be the date of birth of actor James Marsters. 
one of his early film roles was as Channel 3 cameraman in 1999 flick House on Haunted Hill, starring Jeffrey Rush. Rock band Rush disbanded in 2021 after 40 years following the death of drummer Neil Peart, but back in 1980, invited British metal band Saxon to support them on tour. James Saxon played the overweight and annoying detective Bullstrode in Satan's Chimney. Yeah, you see, it all comes back around and everything's connected. Bloody scary. Another Creek connection next time. Eat. Sleep. Creek. Repeat. Satan's Chimney was first broadcast on December the 26th, 2001, and whilst this was obviously the most important worldwide event that day, there was some other stuff going on as well. J.K. Rowling got married, and it was the 10th anniversary of the end of the Cold War. It was called the Cold War because some of it took place in the Soviet Union, and it quite often gets cold there. Songwriter, record producer and actress murderer Phil Spector was celebrating his 62nd birthday, Metallica drummer Lars Ulrich turned 38, and it was the 100th birthday of Estonian linguist and author Elmar Mook, or it would have been had he not died in prison at the age of 40. Significantly more notable than any of this, however, was the fact that the December 2001 issue, number 272, of Picture Postcard Monthly was on the shelves in newsagents around the UK. A mustn't-miss periodical for collectors and aficionados of postcards and cigarette cards. It gets off to a great start on the inside front cover where a Mr Davies of the Brighton Postcard Shop has an advert headed, Wanted. Vintage nudes and semi-nudes. Yes, it's a pre-internet request to send nudes. He's included a photo of a topless woman, just in case nobody knows what a semi-nude means, and he beseeches readers to call or write. If you have genuine vintage glamour postcards for disposal, I would appreciate the opportunity to purchase them. Good prices paid. Without doubt, the best column in the magazine is Goldsmith's Gazette more postcard adventures with Michael Goldsmith, in which our intrepid correspondent tells crazy tales of he and his wife Pat's travels to postcard events around the country. This month they started off in Dorset, boasting that we have just spent four days in a convent in Swanage and it's been one of the best holidays we've ever had, which probably says more about their previous holidays than it does Swanage. He describes Weymouth as one of the grottiest towns on earth with ice cream all over the pavement as far as you could see, which is probably a euphemism for something. And then he recounts a conversation he had with a punter at the picture postcard show in Swanage. The guy inquired as to whether Michael had any really cheap postcards to sell, to which he replied, My dear chap, this is the first day of the picture postcard show, the greatest event in the postcard world south of York and east of Twickenham. I'm sorry, but I cannot help you, and I doubt anyone else in the room can either. And finally, the letters page contains correspondence from a complete party animal called Julian Dunn from Weybridge, who wrote, Imagine my surprise and embarrassment at the Woking Postcard Fair in September, when my 67th birthday was generally announced by a rendition of Happy Birthday. 
and the presentation of a card and cake. I do have a very sweet tooth, but I had my doubts as to whether I could manage the magnificent concoction, so I swapped it with Ken George, who used to be a postcard dealer and is now a prison chaplain, for a pint of beer. This letter is a sincere thank you to all the dealers who were kind enough to add caustic comments to the amusing picture on the birthday card. Presumably most or all of the comments were along the lines of, Calm down Julian, you crazy fucking renegade. Thank you very much for listening to this episode of Get Your Creek On, the first of seven in the show's Carla Borrego epoch. You can contact the show if you feel so inclined by emailing getyourcreekon at gmail.com, by Twitter at creekget, or by heading to the website, which is getyourcreekon.co.uk. Next up in the run will be the first episode of Series 4 of the TV show, The Coonskin Cap. A police officer is found asphyxiated to death in a gymnasium that nobody could possibly have escaped from without being seen. That is it for today. Thanks again for taking the time to check out the show. I will see you on the flip side, aka next time. I'm Toby. Bye for now. Thanks for listening to Get Your Creek On. 